You are listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Well, we're starting uh, the book of Job tonight, which I'm, I am excited about, but I kind of wrestled with that as uh, I was you know, thinking about which book to teach next. For some reason, Job, Job, Job kept coming to me, and I was thinking, no, 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 I don't want to teach Job. Because if you've read Job, uh, it's like 40 chapters of people complaining, and it's kind of... It, it kind of repeats the message and stuff, and, and I was thinking, I'd rather teach something, like give me a, a, a letter from Paul, like that would probably be easier to teach, but I guess we're doing Job, so we're studying Job tonight, and I'm excited, and uh, those are my hang-ups about it, but I'm excited about Job, and the way we're going to start going through Job tonight is pictures, because pictures are fun. I could have probably just explained to you what I'm going to do, but let's just do some pictures, because pictures are more fun, and so... We'll have a picture up here of an object that looks kind of weird. And what is that? Take a look. I don't know. This is a... I don't know if I should ask for guesses. I don't want you to guess. That's my point. So just be, if, if you know it, just pretend like you don't know. That's actually a close-up of an apple stem. An extreme close-up. Looks kind of gross when it's that close-up. Uh, but that's, that's an apple stem, super close Let's look at the next picture, because more fun here. Now this one, what does that look like? Looks very beautiful, very lovely, some sort of diamond thing. There's a, maybe an ice cube. This this is just a uh, grain of sugar, super up close. Yeah, and so the, the super close-up view. Now, we have something there, the apple, the apple stem, that super up close looks pretty gross. Uh, I don't know, like, Dustin said it looked kind of like a hair or something fibrous. looks kind of gross up close. But if you zoomed out from it, it's not really that gross. It's just an apple stem. That doesn't gross anyone out, I hope. Probably somebody out there is grossed out by apple stems, but very rare. Uh, but the, the close-up makes it look different than it really is. And then this one looks very beautiful. looks like it might be valuable, a diamond or something. But really all it is is a little grain of sugar, not really that fancy. It's just sugar. It's the close-up... Adrian laughs because I say that word funny. I'm going to try to avoid saying it. Sugar. Because uh, <laughs> I say sugar, and I guess she, she laughs every time. Um, so when it's, it's close up, it looks better than it really is. Now let's look at the next picture. This one you probably don't have to guess what it is. I, I hope not. You're, you're familiar with the pyramids from Egypt. But let's change our perspective on it. That's how we usually picture it. That's really in context what the pyramids in Egypt look like. I had no idea. It's really in a city, and just from the other direction, it's not really as majestic and, you know, out in the middle of the desert as you might think. Or same with this next picture. We know this, the Mona Lisa, right? Very beautiful, up close, but zoom out. We get the perspective in context. That's the room it's in. 
uh, doesn't look quite so fantastic when you see it in the room that it's in. I can't even see. I think it's way back there on that wall. But it doesn't look as majestic or fancy when you have a different perspective on it. Now let's go to the next one. And this one here as well. I mean, this looks like a nice little scene and maybe the south with the wide boulevard and the trees, maybe in the country in Europe. But what it really is, you zoom out, it's Central Park in New York City. That's just a different view of it. So you're probably getting the point here. It's, it's about perspective. The different perspective that we look at something changes the way that we see it. Now, when I was going to originally do these pictures, I spent like an hour looking for this. And it was very fruitless. I had this image of, I wanted a Google Street View, just looking at a building, that the building looked insignificant. But then when you look on Google Earth, it has like some cool design or something. And the only things out there were like in offensive things that the buildings are shaped like. So internet, do better than that. <laughs> I spent about an hour trying to find a good picture, but it's, it's just like, you know, s- stuff we don't even want to talk about is what the buildings look like. So that's what I came up with after about an hour to show this Difference in perspective, what that, it's just how much it changes. If something gross up close, the apple zoomed out is actually pretty lovely. Something that looks fantastic up close, zoomed out, is just a piece of sugar. Sugar. It's <laughs> something, <laughs> something that, uh, you, you imagine it as a desert scene is actually in a city. So it's about the perspective on it. And now, if perspective is so important, which it is, the perspective we're looking at something from, it's going to be quite a problem for us if our perspective is limited, if the perspective is so important. And that's, unfortunately, the truth we have to deal with in our lives, this problem that our perspective is very limited to what we can see from our point of view. This is the, the problem, or really, yeah, it's the problem, but it's something the book of Job can really help us with, this perspective, how, how much different things look from a different perspective when you keep in mind the context and all the different things going around. And so in the book of Job, just sort of a summary of the entire book, it, it gives us this different perspective that we don't really get in, in anywhere else in our regular lives. So the book of Job is a book about suffering, a book about struggles. That Job is a great guy, seems like everything's going well for him, and then it all gets taken away. And then he's, the next 30 or so chapters, his friends show up and try to comfort him, and they don't do a very good job. They kind of point the finger at him and say, well, you must have done this wrong because something bad is happening to you. And Job would argue with them saying, no, I'm a pretty good guy. I could tell God to his face I'm a good guy. He shouldn't be doing this to me. And then at the end, spoiler alert, but we can't really keep this spoiler because it'll ruin the book. God shows up and shows Job what the zoomed out perspective, what he's been trying to accomplish with this whole situation. And that's what we get to see. It's this great privilege of a perspective we usually don't get to see what God is doing, what he might be trying to accomplish with us in our suffering. And so we all have to be able to relate to Job in some way. Uh, if we don't, we, we have a very easy life, but also probably very denial. I don't, I myself have not suffered the way Job has, but we all have our situation where we don't know why it keeps going like this. We don't know what God is trying to do. We don't know how a loving God could allow this to happen to us. And it's these questions and doubts, and why do I keep suffering? Why, I, I mean, I, he's, is he testing me? I'm passing the test. What is God still trying to do? We all face that, 
we're all maybe facing that or we will in the future. That's life. If we look at it at our limited perspective, well, we don't really get the picture. We, we might be looking at something and we think it looks gross, but really it's not that bad if we zoom it out. Or the opposite, we may be thinking something is really good we have in front of us, but zoomed out, it's not really that great. It's our perspective being limited. So the historical context of Job, to, to set us up here, this is a book in the Old Testament as part of the wisdom literature. That means you've got to read it a little differently than you'd read like a New Testament letter. And why I said we can't really save the spoiler till the end is because if you don't keep in mind the whole context of Job, that these guys are mostly pretty wrong, you can get a really bad perspective on God. Unless we understand the end, God shows up and shows Job what he's been trying to get him to learn this whole time. So we, it's a story. we got to read it like a story. See what's going on, what the characters are going through, the people are going through. But then, is it just a story? And people argue, is this a story, a parable? The best way to read this is it's a historical event. And the reason why is because that's what the Bible says about it. In Ezekiel, Job is mentioned as an example of great suffering. I think it's in the book of James in the New Testament, same. Job is mentioned as an example of someone who suffered. So we read this as something that happened to a person named Job, probably about the time of Abraham, early in God's uh, plan of redemption from outside Israel. Now, when it was actually written, we're not entirely sure who wrote it. We also don't know that. But this is, again, a historical event where we get to see the zoomed out perspective, what God is really trying to do and accomplish in our suffering. And I, I titled this, I don't have a slide because uh, I was very unhappy with the one I made and my power went out last night so I couldn't work on it. But the, the title of this is Letting God Be God. That's the, the message here, to let God be God. And that's what Job learns by the end is he has to. If God is God, we have to allow him to be God. But that's much, much harder than, than it might sound. I mean, you might be going through that right now. You've been through it. You will go through it again. Letting God be God. What we'll see tonight, we're going to read Job 1 and then most of chapter 2. We're going to do kind of big chunks because it's 40-some chapters. That would take a really long time to go through if we went really slowly. And we'd miss kind of the big points. It's a, it's a story. So we want to get the big chunks. And what we'll see tonight, it, this is the setup. Most of the book is Job and his friends debating about what's actually happening. But this shows us God's perspective on what is happening with Job. And what we can learn here in these two chapters is that although our perspective is limited, we need to try to understand our situations from God's point of view. Try to, not that we're going to, but but try to. We'll never be able to for certain see or know exactly what God is trying to accomplish in our lives. We can do our best to pray and to even guess But it won't be clear, probably in this life, what exactly God is trying to do. But Job, the book of Job, is a case study where we get an example. We see, again, this privilege of this zoomed-out perspective to see God's point of view on one person's suffering. And there's much more going on than we can see in our limited perspective. So let's start tonight, Job, chapter 1, and then part of verse 2. Yeah, you want to... Follow along in the Bible. There's some up there because or else you're just going to have to listen to me read for like five minutes. It's a big chunk. I want to read the whole chunk because we want to keep it in context. 
And then we'll go back and look at the different perspectives here and try to put that together and get an understanding what God might be trying to accomplish in our lives through our suffering. So Job chapter 1 at the beginning. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings, according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, All that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. So there's our setup. Again, it's going to go and debate this situation, but here's, here's where we get this perspective that's so valuable. We have three points of view here. The first one is Job, and then we have Satan, then we have God. So from Job's point of view, let's consider what's going on from Job's point of view, because this is really our point of view. This is the one we can relate with. It says back in verse 1, a few things about Job. He was blameless, it said. So blameless means that Job is uh, morally and ethically pure, is what that word means. It doesn't mean that he's perfect. We see that later on. He's not perfect. He kind of thinks he is. He wants to tell God he doesn't deserve this. But he, he's, he's pure. That means he's a good guy. He, he tries to do his best. He, he honors God. And people see him that way too, as a good guy. It also says that he's upright. He's blameless and upright. That means he's pleasing to God. And we saw that. In the thing. God is proud of Job. That's an awesome thing. Have you considered my servant Job? So he is upright, pleasing to God. God loves Job. Now always remember that as we go through this book. God loves Job. God is pleased with Job. He's even proud of Job. It's not a punishment. We'll get to that. It also says in verse 1 that he feared God. I mean, he's a reverent guy. He and we saw in those, those verses, his kids would go, it sounds like they were partying a little bit. It says they were drinking on that wine. Uh, and then he would go afterwards because he was worried and do a sacrifice for them. I mean, if you're going to do that after your kids are out, you're probably suspecting they're doing something not right. Like when my wife goes to Bible study uh, and it's night, I don't make a sacrifice for her in the morning because pretty sure she didn't do something wrong. You're kind of only doing that if you're a little worried that your kids aren't doing something that they should be doing. But that means he's reverent. He's taking care of his kids. He's worried that they've offended God and he wants to make sure I'm going to do a sacrifice for them because he loves them and he wants to make sure everything is is all right with that. Now it's important. Remember this. Job is a good guy. His friends forget that. He forgets that, but he's he's a good guy. Blameless, upright, fear God. And then it says, verses 2 and 3 there, that not only that's his character, but he's also blessed materially. I mean, it says he has seven sons, three daughters. He has a bunch of sheep, oxen, donkeys, a large house. And he was the greatest of all the people in the east in that area. He's also very materially blessed. And then as I already said in verse 4, he's very careful to make sure his kids are sort of covered, watching out for them. Now at this point, if we look at just that first section, uh, verses one through five, gotta be careful not to step on that stink bug or you guys are gonna run out of here. <laughs> uh, so, if you look just at that section, woo, uh, that Job is very, he's a good guy. That's his point of view. Job is good. Yeah, he, he's a good guy. He tries to do the right things. Now, this in our economy, the way we oftentimes think about God, this is all making sense to us. Job tries to do the right thing. Job is blessed 
in many different ways. We kind of think those things correlate. And this is making sense in our sort of flawed understanding. But now let's, as we consider Job's point of view, there's that exchange between God and Satan. Let's skip that for now because Job doesn't know that. And just try to put yourselves in Job, Job's shoes. He's trying to do the right thing. All of a sudden, this, he has no understanding of what is happening with God. All of a sudden, his blessing then becomes a curse. And everything is taken away from him. One by one, people are coming up. Your servants have died. Your sheep have died. Your camels have died. Everyone's died, including your own kids. When they were drinking wine, the roof fell on them and they all died. And all these things that I'm sure he thought were a blessing because he's a good guy. That's kind of what he says later on. They're all taken away. And then if we look at verse 20 of chapter 1, I mean, this is, these are famous lines, verse 20 and 21. After all that's taken away, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. See, Job, if, if this is a test, if he's... God, what are you trying to do here? Are you testing me? I think you probably passed it. I mean, if your kids are going to die and that's what you say, I was born with nothing, I'm going to die with nothing, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, I'm going to still worship. And that's a good response, Job. Good job. I don't think I would do that. Job, good. But then, again, leave out the perspective that we get, the zoomed out perspective. Just stick with Job. He does that. And it gets, continues to get worse for him. And now his kids die, and then all of a sudden he starts getting boils and leprosy and skin problems, and his health is taken away. And then his wife tells him, you know what, you might as well just curse God and die. What's the point of continuing on? Why should you continue to trust God when this has started to happen to you? When he's taken everything away, now including your health, why don't you just give it up? I mean, so he's lost everything, including his health now. His wife is encouraging him to leave God. And then he says again, Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when we look at just Job's perspective here, that's pretty amazing. But, if we keep the whole book in perspective, what happens next? We'll get to it next week, but Job sits there after he says that. For seven days, doesn't say a word. His friends show up to try to comfort him doesn't say a word. Then the first things he says is, I wish I would have never been born. I wish God would have killed me when I was a baby. I wish I would die right now. And then it keeps getting worse. Then his friends say, well, Job, this is happening because he did something wrong. Job saying, no, it's not. I didn't do anything wrong. And it's this, this big argument. So here's what I'm saying. We look at Job a lot here as an example. And we should. This is exemplary. If... He means it. And I don't, I don't want to, he might, I, I can't judge Job, but based on everything that happens and the next things that, that happens to him, the next things that he says, he spends like 30 some chapters yelling at God, which God is fine with. And that's going to be a big lesson. But does Job mean this? It's only exemplary if he means it. If when all this stuff is taken away, that he he can say, shall we indeed accept good from God and we not accept adversity? It's not just that he's taking and saying, okay, smiley and and, everything's going to be fine. And so when we're in in this situation, we identify with Job. 
Because he's the person and we're people. And when we're, you know, just saying the religious platitudes, oh, everything will work out for good, it's going to be fine. God isn't impressed with that in Job, we'll see. Honesty is, he, he doesn't yell at Job for being angry with God. We don't have to pretend. So again, these are great things to say, but I just, I want to encourage you in suffering. Only if you mean it though, if you're angry, we can be angry with God. That's one of the points here. Because that's an act of faith. But we'll get, get to that later. I don't want to give, give too much away of it. But now, what's the point? I mean, it seems like nonsense if we leave, if we just have the zoomed in perspective on Job. What is God doing? I thought Job was good. Why would, would all this stuff be happening to him? Well, now we zoom out a little bit. And we get this other perspective. The next perspective is Satan. We don't usually get to see this. Again, we go through our lives just suffering, not understanding why. Why does this stuff keep happening to me? But this shows Satan's involvement in what's going on with Job. So Satan shows up in verse 6. And it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. So Satan, first of all, the word Satan, the name Satan means the accuser. And that's what we're going to see here, what he does with Job. He is the accuser. And he tells God he's been going to and fro upon the earth. Now it says elsewhere in the Bible in the New Testament that Satan is the God of this earth. Lowercase g God, not real God, but his influence and is prevalent on this earth. And the way we can see it, I mean, Job is walking the earth spreading, or not Job, Satan is walking the earth spreading his influence. And if we look at Satan worshipers, that gives us a pretty good, good understanding. Now, so, as someone who worships Satan doesn't really worship this Satan. A Satan worshiper doesn't believe in Satan because they don't believe in God. They're atheists. But they use that as sort of an ideology to say, well, what's Satan all about? He's all about me and exalting myself. And so a Satan worshiper does not believe in Satan and worship him in the same way we worship God. It's just a way of saying we worship ourselves. We don't think someone should be above us. We should be able to do whatever makes us feel good, whatever makes us happy. We should do it. That's what Satan worship is all about. And that's his influence. And you don't have to be a Satan worshiper to follow that lifestyle. I mean, I know that's me before I was a Christian. That's me when I struggle. That's that influence of living for myself, doing what I think is going to make me happy, not worrying about other people. And we see that in schools, in advertising, in media, in businesses, in government. The whole world is set up that way, that it's about us. And that's the influence going to and fro on the earth. But, important lowercase God of the earth. He's not really God of the earth. God is the one who's almighty and in control. So we don't give Satan too much credit. Not more than he deserves, which isn't really much. Now, he's not God's equal. When we talk about you know Satan being the God of this world, it's, it was kind of setting up this picture that you have God and the forces of heaven and Satan and the forces of hell and they're duking it out. But no, God created hell as a place for Satan, as punishment for him, God is Lord of all. And it's going to get really difficult to digest here in a minute. Satan is not God's equal. It's not good and evil fighting it out. God is God of everything. Now that being said, 
we got to have a real understanding of God. Let God be God. And at first it sounds really bad, but let's get the whole picture here. Satan attacked Job. So here's Satan's point of view. Satan attacks him. He says, if, if you took everything from him, why would he not worship you? You've blessed him so much. Take that away and he's going to curse you. And then through Satan, he, he, he takes it all away. But who allowed it? Who even instigated it? See, this is where it gets really hard. God. God allowed it. God instigated it. God is the one who brought Job up to Satan. And then he says, go ahead, do it. See, now it's, it's going to get really hard, but we're going to put it all together here and hopefully not be so angry at God here. But this, this is not looking good right now. But so when we say we're being attacked, and yes, we do get attacked as Christians because we're going against that self-worship. We're going against all that and exalting God. We do get attacked, probably not from Satan himself, but from you know lesser demonic forces. But here's to remember. Yeah, I'm being attacked. But who is allowing it? Who is maybe even instigating it? It's God. Maybe. We don't know. This is maybe not... 100% all the time, but in this perspective, it's God who's allowing it. He has to in some way. If God does not allow Satan to attack us, if it's not, if he's not saying, go ahead, do it, then Satan is in some way equal with God. And why worship a God who is equal with Satan? Now, what is Satan telling God about Job? So here's where we got to understand the attack here. That he's saying lies. He's making these uh, false observations and, and false accusations against Job. Because it says in the Bible that Satan is the father of lies. That's his native tongue. He only speaks lies. And see, here's the reality. And here's, again, a perspective we don't always get, or never get really, except for in this book, that God is pleased with Job. And that's, that's an amazing thing. God brings Job up to Satan. He says, have you considered my servant Job? How awesome he is. I mean, that's... think. Have you considered my servant Adrian? Have you considered my servant Esther, my servant Mark? I mean, God could be saying that about us, proud of us, even to Satan. But then Satan looks at the lies. He looks at the part of it where he becomes the accuser. Yeah, no wonder that person's a good servant. You're giving them everything they want. You take that away, you're going to see they only worship you because you give them stuff. He looks at what's wrong and magnifies it. And he'll draw your attention to it as well. So how do you know what is from Satan? Look here. This is the perspective, the zoomed out thing. Again, God is bragging on Job. Job isn't perfect, but God's excited about him. And it's not God bringing up the things and doubting Job. That's Satan who's accusing. An accusation, this shows us, zoomed up perspective, accusation comes from Satan. He's the accuser. That does not come from God. It says Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who's to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. That's what it says. If Jesus died for you, why is he going to condemn you and accuse you of your guilt and call you a sinner, awful, you know, unrighteous person when he died for you to be forgiven of that satan is the accuser and that's what he's doing here that's how he works so then we either tend to downplay satan or overplay satan but we see here satan is completely subservient to god 
he's checking in with God, and then he has to check out. He has to get the okay. I mean, he's like coming in to say, say what he's been doing. We can't overlook that. Yes, Satan attacks us. He accuses us. But God mentioned Job. God allowed Satan to do it, and Satan couldn't do it without God's permission. This is, this is tough, but we're going to put this together in a minute. We don't have all the perspectives yet. So Satan then destroys Job's life. Kills everyone, all his possessions, everything he's been working for his entire life is gone. And then, as I said, Job passes the test. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, he takes away. Then again, Satan accuses. Job passed the test and said, well, of course he he said that. I mean, you didn't really hurt him. You just took away his stuff. The exact thing that Satan said, he's going to curse your face if you take away his stuff. He didn't curse him when he took away the stuff. So he goes to another accusation. Obviously he won't. He says skin for skin. What what he means by that is that uh, Job doesn't really care because He'll sacrifice other people because he's fine. He's okay because he didn't really get hurt. So take away his health. He's going to curse you to his face. That's what Satan says. And see, look what he does. See how, get this perspective. This is the perspective that we don't see. Job is doing good. He's trying to do right by God. God is pleased with him. Satan focuses on what is wrong or what even could be wrong with him. Not even any basis in reality. He just says it. Now we hear that voice as Christians saying stuff like that. That doesn't come from God. We get that perspective. We also hear that voice from our own mouths about other people. Where we're focusing on the speck in other people's eyes and forgetting the log in our own eye. And how do, how do I know that this comes out of our mouths? I hear it from my mouth. When we're looking at people and other Christians who have been forgiven and we're looking at the little thing that maybe isn't even wrong but potentially could be and magnifying that and accusing about that probably behind their back because that's what I do too much of a coward to say anything that is what Satan does and I'm just as guilty as it if not more so than anyone else when I'm doing that whose side am I on when we're doing that with other people now what that voice says the accusing voice Aren't you a Christian? Aren't you supposed to be done with this? Shouldn't you be done struggling with this? You don't have what it takes. God is mad at you. You don't read your Bible enough. You don't pray enough. You'll never overcome this sin, this temptation. God won't listen to you because you do blank. You don't trust God enough. You don't love God enough. See, these are accusations. God doesn't say stuff like this. Satan does. you got to know that voice. That's the perspective we're getting here in Job. So then Satan gives boils to Job, takes away his health. And then he's gone. That's it. Satan doesn't come back in this book again. That's an important point too when we see this perspective. The reason why he doesn't come back is God is done using him. See, God is in control. God's done using him. And see, the thing with Satan is he is his own worst enemy. He thinks he's causing all this trouble to Job, but at the end, Job is thankful for what happens. Job repents. He asks God forgiveness, and he loves God even more than before it started when everything was going his way. So the whole time, yeah, God instigated this. God told Satan, you can do this to Job. And then he was done with him. See, God is in control. 
But that, that's tough. So now let's zoom out again to God's point of view. This is the most important thing. Again, we don't get this. This is our case study. We can apply this to our lives. Again, God's point of view. He loves Job. He is proud of Job. He's the one who tells Satan about Job. Because he's using Satan for his own purposes. Now, God gives Satan what he asked for. He asked to take, take his stuff away, so God says, okay, take his stuff away. God allowed it, and he drew his attention. I, I, I keep emphasizing that because that's important. He, again, then tells Satan, Job passed that first test. He's the one who brought it up. Did you see how Job responded when you did that? He didn't curse me like you said he would. God brought him up. So Satan accuses again. Yeah, take, take away his health. He's going to curse you to your face. God allowed it again. Fine, take away his health. See, what's, what's God doing? I, if we don't really think about this, this probably doesn't make it sound a lot better. In this suffering, imagine uh, a doctor operating, a brain surgeon operating on someone's brain. And to get to someone's brain, you probably have to like, cut through their skull to get to the brain and maybe even remove part of the brain. And that's, uh, that's good. I mean, if, if you need that done to get your head cut open and take part of the brain out. But that, that situation is not, that situation is not very good for two reasons. I mean, there's two ways that situation could be very bad. One, one way is if that person's not actually a doctor. See, then it's not good. Then you have a serial killer. I mean, then you have, that, that's creepy. If the person cutting your head open is not a doctor, that's, not something we want. Even if you have something wrong with your brain, we, that person needs to be a doctor. The other way that could be terribly wrong is if there's nothing wrong with your brain. If the doctor's just cutting open your head because, well, let's just do it. Let's go for it. Uh, there has to be something wrong or else it's cruel, unusual, disgusting, and like very weird and morbid. See, the action looks bad. If you just saw that objectively, some person cutting open someone's head to get to their brain, that it just sounds messed up. It looks bad. But it all depends on who is doing it and what the person's doing it for. That's what makes all the difference. Now, what we're going to see here, Job has some junk to work out. Job thinks he's pure. He thinks he has the right to stand before God and plead his case. But he still has some junk to work out. That's what God is trying to show him. And we do too. We have junk that needs to get worked out of us. See, what God is doing is sick unless He's trying to accomplish something. Unless there is something wrong with Job. Unless He has a reason to operate. And unless we trust Him that He knows what He's doing. That He's the doctor. He's the one who can go in there and see what's wrong and take care of it. We can do that. We'll get to that in a second. But it's one reason is the perspective. He sees things a way we cannot understand. Now, to close, let's kind of let's put all this together. These three perspectives try to make sense of Job's suffering, so we can make sense of our own when we don't understand what God is trying to accomplish with all these bad things happening to us. I was going to have a uh, like an awesome little lesson here with a visual aid, but I didn't really, uh, I didn't have access to sand. I needed sand and I I didn't have any sand handy. So you're just going to have to imagine. So it might even look better than it might have looked. I I never tested this. But here's what I was going to show you. Imagine that I have like a water bottle 
and it looks nice and clear, nice clear water, pure looking. And that water bottle is Job. Hey, Job looks like he's a good guy. It looks like there's nothing really all that bad about him. He's pretty well cleaned up. I mean, really kind of your average person. I think, I mean, I've been a Christian a few years. I can at least essentially look good from outward appearances. Like not look good, but you know, not, not like some obvious sins that Christians like to point the fingers at. I, I tend to hide those things. So I mean, I, I, can under, I can know how to at least look like I'm pure water there. But Job is not sinless. Job is not perfect. And he thinks that he is. He thinks he has nothing that, that would, no reason why any of this would be happening. And then what I was going to do, you have to imagine, is I was going to shake the water bottle. And then there's going to be all that sand at the bottom that you didn't see, which you might have saw and ruined it. That's why the imagination is better. So it, the sand, when I shake it, would have like made the water impure. And it's the shaking up that got all that dirt and junk at the bottom to come become clear so that it's obvious to see. When you first look at Job, he looks like he's a pretty good guy, but he has this junk hiding, this sin hiding inside of him. Whatever that is. For me, it's you know being judgmental, gossiping, backbiting, all these things. That when I get shaken up, that's the junk that comes up. And that shaking up, that's, that's the stuff we go through in our lives, like the, the thing over the summer we had a miscarriage and that's like a thing shakes me up. And that, that little baby that didn't even live in the world did so much for me with my relationship with God, with him using that situation for his purposes that I d- didn't see at the time. But that's the, the shaking up and that junk in us that causes us to sin because the sin is inside of us and then we act on it. When we get shaken up, that stuff comes to the surface. And we start to see, I'm not so great as I think I am. I have a bunch of stuff God still needs to deal with. But now the hard part, when I shake the water bottle, who's doing the shaking in this story when we get the whole perspective? It's Satan who's shaking. But then who told Satan to do it? It's God. So the dirt fills the bottle. It becomes obvious. And what God is wanting, when we keep the whole thing in perspective, God wants Job to see he still had that dirt in him. There's still that sin. And at the end, Job repents. This is what God does with us, as I was saying. We have that dirt. He shakes us or tells Satan to shake us so he can help us deal with that dirt that comes up. But it doesn't quite end there. I mean, that's not all that happens. It's still pretty cruel if that's all that happens. He just shakes us up. Look at all that stuff wrong with you. Ha ha. That's what Satan does. Points the finger and accuses. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't just shake you up to say, look how bad you are. See, if Job is that bottle, a bottle can't open its own bottle cap. It has no ability to do that. The sand or the dirt is just stuck in there. What the gospel is, It says that Jesus has no dirt. Jesus is God in the flesh, and He lived through this earth. And you think you're being tempted by Satan. I mean, Jesus endured 40 days of direct temptation from Satan. He went to the cross while 
taking on the sins of the world and he's praying in the garden, sweating blood before he does that. He's shaken up by Satan. But the difference is there was no dirt in Jesus. He had no sin in him. So when that shook him up, he's just as pure as if he had no sin because he didn't. He had no sin. What the Bible says, what the gospel is, He became our sin. He who knew no sin became our sin. So He took our dirt and died for it on the cross so that that dirt will be taken out of our water water bottle because He has done screw the cap, take that out, took that upon Himself and then gives us His water. He gives us living water. And so now God sees us as righteous and pure without sin. He sees you like you have no dirt. Now that's a spiritual reality. That's how we are saved. That's how we're forgiven. God sees us the same way He sees His Son, Jesus. Because He took our sin, died for it, paid for it, and then gave us His righteousness so we could be spiritually pure. But there's still the problem, is we're not pure. We're not without sin. And if we confuse these two things, we'll get really discouraged. And that's where Satan is going to accuse us. Shouldn't you be pure? Aren't you a Christian now? Shouldn't that dirt be gone? But what God does is spend the rest of your life helping you to make that spiritual reality into a physical reality. He does as much as He can to take that dirt out and help you with that, with our cooperation. He already sees us as pure, but then He works in us to make that into a physical reality. It'll never happen on this side of eternity, but He works to help us to see the dirt and then give it to Him and see how Jesus fills that. But it hurts. It sounds good. It's just sitting here, but it hurts. When we're going through it, we know. It's not like, oh, yay, God is dealing with my stuff. It hurts. It hurts Job. And all the hardships in our lives and all our problems financially, maritally, with family, with kids, all these things, they're God shaking us up to show us our dirt so we can ask Him for help getting rid of it. Now what if God gave Job everything that he asked for? What if God gave you everything you asked for? I don't, even, I don't think we would be really thankful. And there's that parable of the ten lepers. Jesus heals ten people of leprosy. They all run away really excited. One comes back to say thank you. And that's so much, so much of what I've asked God for, He's given me. I'm not really thankful. Actually, I get kind of, you know, God, how can I be of use to your kingdom? And then He gives me another opportunity. Oh God, there's too much on my plate. How can I do it? I mean, He, when He gives us what we ask for, we're generally not thankful. But when He shakes us up and we see it for ourselves, how much we need Him, then we would become thankful. So God shakes us up because He loves us. The doctor is only good for doing brain surgery. If you have a problem, and if you trust that he knows what he's doing. The question is then, do you think you have a problem? If you don't, you're not going to endure whatever God is trying to do. If you don't think you have any deep-rooted issues. Then the other question is, do you trust that God knows what he's doing? That his perspective is better? That he's the doctor? That he can perform this operation? And if you doubt that, look to the cross. Because he already died for you to be forgiven. He's not going to die for you and then say, yeah, I'm just going to let a bunch of bad stuff happen to you and not help you at all. That's not how he works. The cross proves that you can trust him. 
We can't understand everything He's doing. But can we let God be God? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and this perspective that we get tonight to help us to get an understanding of the way that You work. God, now that we've studied this and, and we've seen this, help us with our own lives and our own struggles, however You're shaking us up. Help us to see what You're doing in that, God. And even if it's so tough we can hardly bear it right now, help us to remember that there's issues You're working out in us. Help us to remember that You already died for us to forgive us so that we can trust You. And help us to remember that this kind of stuff has happened before and we've probably been thankful for it when we've seen the other side. So God, thank You for Your love for us. Thank You that we can trust You, that You've given us Your Son so that we know that we can. Father, if there's anyone listening who's going through struggles without You and they're wondering how could You be a loving God and allow this to happen, convict them now, show them that they can trust You because their sins are forgiven if they by faith accept what You've already done for them. And help us all, God, as we struggle and as we don't understand what's going on, to remember that our perspective is limited. And to try and pray and to see as best as we can from your point of view what you're trying to do in us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.